Now, see, that's the wonderful thing about us sharing a birthday uh, is that we we both are the the exact same mindset that we're going to bring a hundred and fifty percent to the table at all times. Well, I I don't know about one hundred and fifty. I bring about one hundred and six. I bring the fever. <laughs> This is episode number nine with Electric Avenue keyboard player and keyboard tech to the stars, Eric Frampton. Welcome to Fader Jocks. My name is Brian Stevens, freelance musician and recording studio professional. Each episode, we bring you an inspiring person or message to help you grow and develop as an audio engineer, music producer, or recording musician. Thanks for hanging out with me today. Now let's push up those faders. This episode is brought to you by Session Ace and their incredible line of in-ear monitors and other musician-specific products. I've been using the Six Driver Universal Fit ESA in-ear monitors on every single recording session and live gig that I've played on for the last three years. And let me tell you, there's absolutely nothing under $2,000 that sounds as good as these ESAs. Believe me, I've owned everything under $2,000 just about. And the shocking thing about these is these six driver in-ear monitors, you can get them today. Your own set for less than $400. Unbelievable. So go to SessionAce.com today to check out the ESA in-ear monitors as well as their entire catalog of musical products. That's SessionAce.com. Remarkable tools for musical craftsmen. Hey there, and welcome to the very next episode of Fader Jocks. And yeah, we're exactly one week from the last episode, which has never happened. And uh, hopefully going forward, we will continue this streak, uh, the streak that we're on. Speaking of streaks, as I'm recording the intro for this podcast, uh, our Braves lost last night uh, at the last home game. But uh, they are going to Houston tomorrow night. You will probably be watching this either slightly before or slightly after that game happens. And hopefully we will be World Series champions. I would have gotten this episode out even quicker were it not for sitting and watching the World Series. I haven't watched a lot of baseball. We've watched hit and miss through the season. And the wife and I have been watching, we watched the National League Championship Series. We've watched the entire World Series. If I'm being honest, more for my friend uh, Matthew Kaminsky, who is the organist for the Braves, than for the actual baseball. If I'm being truly honest, Matthew and I have known each other now for probably nine years, I guess. I was brought in to work on engineering an album of his called Swingin' on the New Hammond. You can get it on Apple Music and Spotify. Dave Stryker plays guitar. Basically, Dave Stryker's the guitar player for all the greatest organ trios. And so um, Matthew brought Dave in to play guitar. My buddy Justin Barnes played drums on that. We recorded that here at my studio. So if you're wondering what my studio sounds like and what uh, it sounds like for me to work on a jazz album, jazz trio album. That's a good example. And then uh, a couple of years after Matthew put that record out, then I got the opportunity to engineer and mix live at Churchill Grounds, which is a bigger group, including a vocalist. Again, uh, fronted by Matthew 
and it's a, it's an amazing record. Uh, it was challenging because of the space we had to record in a noisy club downtown Atlanta. Uh, all the things that 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 brings with it. But uh, make sure you check out those two albums on Spotify or Apple Music. Swinging on the New Hammond and Live at Churchill Grounds by Matthew Kaminsky. Oh, if you want to hear him as a side man, uh, go and check out the Mark Cavalli single. K O V A L Y Cavalli. Yes, I had to spell that phonetically. Uh, Mark Cavalli every day. That's Matthew on the organ as a side man, and he just played organ on a new Mark Cavalli single that should be out in about another month called Some Days, and uh, Matthew's an amazing, amazing organ player. Not just a baseball organ player, uh, an everything organ player. Got to give my buddy uh, props there. Uh, we're going to get him on the show in the next few weeks. You just wait. Uh, anyway, so before we launch into today's show and what it's about, I got to tell you about uh, our Patreon and make sure that you go over to patreon.com slash Brian Stevens. If you dig this interview and you want about 20 more extra minutes of really deep, geeky content, you can get that over on the Patreon, as well as uh, drum samples. We're going to have some drum loops coming up in the next week or two. We're going to have some uh, mix templates, all kinds of different things that you'll be able to find there on uh, Patreon dot com slash Brian Stevens. If you want to support the podcast, that's the most direct way that you can do it. Also, you can share these episodes with your friends online on all your social platforms. I'd appreciate that. So diving right into our guest, because we have a lot to talk about uh, today. My buddy, Eric Frampton. Eric, I've known since probably the mid to late uh, 90s, and we get into a little bit of that and share some stories. But uh, Eric is a keyboard player who has played on a ton of records. He's also performed in concert with people like Mother's Finest, Stuck Mojo, the B-52s, and Fozzie. He's been the utility keyboard player, piano player, organ player, synth programmer. Uh, for a ton of different live gigs, including one that we'll talk about extensively that he's doing now, which is one of the flagship 80s tribute bands that's traveling around the country now called Electric Avenue. And uh, we talk about what he does in that band, what his process is for getting ready for those shows and that set list. But uh, when he's not playing keyboards in Electric Avenue, He's also the keyboard tech to the stars, and I'm not exaggerating this. If you look at his resume, it includes the B-52s. It includes Paul Simon. Special aside, so uh, when he got back from doing rehearsals when he was doing the Paul Simon tour, sometime in the 2000s, I remember it because... We were on a recording session together. He was playing keys. I was playing drums. And he said, man, I just got back from doing rehearsals with Paul Simon. And I'm like, holy cow, we got to talk about this. So he gave me the full download on uh, what it's like to be in a room with Steve Gadd. And, of course, that's what I wanted to know. Uh, I remember that Paul Simon tour he was uh, he was keyboard teching for. But he's also um, teched for Yanni and Boston, and for the last like seven or so years, he's been the keyboard tech for Lionel Richie and Lionel Richie's band. And uh, so we talk a lot about that process. And as if that wasn't enough, Eric's also created themes and soundtracks for 
corporate clients, companies such as IBM, the Ford Motor Company, CPAC, and the Atlanta Braves. He's even composed six full-length musicals for musical theater. In his spare time, he likes to repair and restore vintage keyboards, and we talk a little bit about that. And so, without further ado, without too much more preamble, let's just get right in to my conversation with my buddy and my birthday brother. We share the same birthday. My birthday brother, Eric Frampton. Let's talk about stuff that we can actually put that we can actually put on the air. Right. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. It just, Uh, yeah. Here's the edit point for the first 22 minutes. Yeah. Man, I appreciate you taking time to talk with me. Of course. And uh, I mean, we, 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 we could talk for four hours. We totally could. <laughs> and have with no microphones. Oh, yeah. But I appreciate you taking time to jump in front of a microphone and talk with me about some very specific stuff that only you and I can talk about. Yep. And there's two things I want to center on because there's a myriad of things you and I could talk about. Yeah. There, Oh, yeah. we, we both have our hands in a lot of pies. Yes, yes. And can do a lot of things for people. Mm-hmm. But I mainly want to talk about two things. The first one is you're in what I, what I consider one of the premier tribute bands. Oh, thank you. In, in the tribute space, there's a lot of lackluster talent. Yes. But when it comes to Electric Avenue, that would not be the case. You guys do an amazing job recreating music that people absolutely love. Thank you. So I want to talk about that for a second because that doesn't happen by accident no it does not there has to be a lot not only have they done a good job of hiring great musicians Mm -hmm. but there has to be a lot of work on the front end to make sure that what gets up there is going to be great Mm -hmm. i'm curious is there a ton of pre-production in terms of preparing when you guys choose a song do you put a lot of work into being able to craft what's going to be on stage well yeah, there are a number of factors that for us narrow, you know, the 80s was all over the place musically. Yeah. I mean, you're coming out of the, the, the 70s punk thing and you've got the still got pop stuff. Going. And especially the early 80s that we're trying to cover was the nexus of brilliant musicians and the technology finally caught up with them. It's the yes. point that that the musicians are still brilliant, but the technology hadn't taken over yet. Right. And it makes it tricky because the studio technology is caught up so that we can do layers and layers and layers and layers and layers of stuff. Right. Which couldn't really happen before. The idea of a recording as a performance started going out the window. So for us, one of the questions is what's it going to take for us to pull it off live? If there are 60 guitar tracks, can Shannon Pengelly, our guitar player, and Kevin Spencer, our lead singer who also plays some guitar, can they pull it off just between the two of them? Right. Keyboard wise, can I, you know, what can I do with, with two hands and, and two feet and mind control or whatever, you know, uh, <laughs> what, you know, what, what can we actually do there? Kevin's got an amazing voice, but it is a high baritone. So he has his limitations. We can't sit there and do journey covers all night because he doesn't have that extra octave. Most people do not. Right. So it's very much the practical considerations of how to do it live. And then whittling down uh, the the repertoire, we're, like, a, like I said a minute ago, we're very specific about the time period that we want to cover. It's sure. about 79 to about 86, that dawn of MTV kind of thing. 
Yep. So no like 70s soft rock stuff and no later 80s getting into MPC 60 kind of production. It's right. all kind of that window. And then we also are really careful to pick the tunes or try to pick tunes that when an audience hears it, they go, holy cow, I totally forgot about that. The ones that might have hit the number one or at least the top 10 or whatever, but that aren't the go-to ones that everybody does. You still have a few tent poles that people can expect. Exactly. But most of the most of the song list is a really pleasant surprise. That's what we're shooting for. Yeah. We've discovered that that even if we play a given tune and maybe 5% of the audience knows it from the first notes, the rest of the audience will know it by the chorus. Yeah. And then we've maybe added to our tribe a little bit by, oh my God, they played X that I've never heard anybody play before. How did they possibly do that? And yeah. boy, isn't that cool? You know, it's not another, not that these are bad tunes, but an ACDC tune or a Journey tune or a whatever, just the stuff that everybody goes to. We don't go there. So it, it throws a lot of people uh, off because they're like, oh, 80s band, great. We're going to hear this. It's like, no, you're not. You're going to hear this <laughs> other stuff you weren't even expecting. Yeah. And the people that it turns off it turns off but the tribe that that it attracts is a really strong tribe so long answer to your short question those are some of the things we have in mind and age in this case the median age of the people in the band is really important because for you guys this is music that you grew up on yes so there's there's that part of it too where you have not just a nostalgic remembrance but you've got a love for these tunes because just like me i mean you know these were the songs you were listening to coming up mm -hmm. they were on mm -hmm. the radio you probably owned the cassettes they, they were the songs that you made mixtapes for for your girlfriend right 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 <laughs> well stuff. in my case as one of the two older guys in the band <clears throat> uh <laughs> um I played this stuff the first time around. I mean, there's, there is actually a little degree of muscle memory from when I was a teenager ah. and played this stuff in cover bands yeah. way back in the day as a, as a teenager. So there's not much muscle memory, but there's a, there's a little bit there and, and maybe some awareness of some of the parts and things that other people might gloss over. You know, as a kid, I really just ripped these productions apart, just dove into them. Yeah. And you know, now as adults with some more production knowledge and in my case, synth programming knowledge and everything else, I can go into them and rip them apart in a whole different way. So there's a, a collective memory there for sure. For so sure. when you're pulling together your sounds and your rig to play with, are you using some of the original synths? Or are you using, uh, you know, newer VSTs that are recreations of these things? How are you driving your sound? Let me, so I'm going to backtrack one layer uh, past that. Okay. Part, part of doing the, the pre-production for me is going into my archive of keyboard magazines. I've got keyboard magazine all the way back to about 1980. Oh, wow. Yeah. I didn't subscribe from then because I was only 10 years old, but uh, I found them all. So I go back whenever I can into keyboard magazines and now online scans of, of stuff and find the interviews with the artists from back in the day Ooh. to find out if I can what they actually used. Okay. For instance... We do, you know, like the Thomas Dolby tune, Blinded Me With Science. Yep. I found an interview with him talking, or a couple of different interviews with him, talking about the only keyboards he had back then were a Jupiter 4, yep. 
and I think a Moog source or maybe a micro Moog. And then I think they triggered the, the, the drum stuff from like an old PPG mm-hmm. sequencer or something. Uh, but for as far as my keyboard stuff, uh, Jupiter 4 and a Moog source or a micro Moog. Okay. Now I can listen to the track and go, oh, okay. So those pads are never going to be more than a four voice polysynth because the Jupiter 4 only has four voices. Those bleeps and bloops I know came from this Moog synth and I happen to have one on the shelf here. Yep. So I pull it off the shelf and I can recreate those sounds. And then in most cases, I can either fly in samples in my my live rig or mm-hmm. I'm not using main stage or any VSTs. I'm just doing it uh, old school with hardware. I've got a... That's um, going to be my next question. Yep. I got a Cord Cronus and a Yamaha S90 and that's it. Oh, wow. Yeah. No, no VSTs, no main stage. If I could bring my entire studio out and do analog stuff, I would. But you can't keep the stuff running. Right. So that's a really big problem now is I've got, I'm, I'm very fortunate. I've got a Jupiter 4. I've got a, a micro Moog. I've had a Moog source, but I don't want to take them out. So what can I recreate on the Kronos or on the S90 or take samples or whatever and fly that stuff in to do that live? So there's, in my world, there's a ton of, of research, even before I even play a single note or tweak a single knob to just find out what they used and see if I, have it in stock and if i don't if i can get close to it the fact that you're you're using two readily available keyboards the chronos is a pretty commonly in the wild occurring workstation mm-hmm. and the other one is on a ton of rental lists does it make it easier to play fly dates and stuff that's exactly yeah it does makes it much easier you yeah. just carry that stuff loaded into those rental keyboards and you got everything as if it were your own? Yep, that's exactly right. In fact, I used to, I was a, a Kurzweil guy forever and ever and ever and ever. And it was the one thing that made me have to get away from Kurzweil is that no, none of the backline houses had the keyboards I needed. Just in terms of practicality, I had to switch over to the Kronos because, I mean, the Kronos is an amazing piece. Don't get me wrong. I'm not dissing it in any way, but I had not used Korg stuff before that because it just the Kurtzwild. Backline houses, nobody stocked the Kurtzwild stuff. They'd always look at me like, who are you and what do you think you're doing? <laughs> <laughs> what What in the actual, yeah. Uh, so yeah, just be able to throw it on a thumb drive and stick it in a Kronos and yeah. That just, it was a practicality thing. Yeah. The only negative thing I, I think I know about a Kronos is it takes like 25 minutes to boot up. Or yes. <laughs> if you lose power, you're screwed. <laughs> yeah. There's no just on, off, go, go right back to what you were doing. Uh-uh. No. I mean, and all these new machines take a, take a minute to, to boot. They're all using like embedded Linux systems or whatever. And they, they, they got to fire up this whole operating system before they'll even blink at you. Yeah. Well, that takes me to this other point. Before we talk about tech and for other people, how much of your own tech and do you need to do? Do you ever need to get under the hood on those things, especially when you're out on the road? Thankfully, not knock on all possible wood here. Thankfully, not terribly often. Uh, if it's my own keyboards, I, you know, I'm, I'm a little, OCD, so I take really good care of them. If it is backline stuff, I can tell pretty quickly how beaten up it is, and and then I'll I'll bother the local backline rep to to make it right. And then my own stuff. I mean, I got into the whole teching thing just because I couldn't find anybody to to fix. I love old machines. I couldn't find anyone to fix them without damaging them. 
Right. So that's how I hadn't gotten to that thing to, to start with. But no, of my current rig, very rarely do I have to, to crack the hood, thankfully. So knowing that you get, you do some fly dates and you got rental gear there, had, you had the occasion where you show up and what you asked for isn't there? Not recently. Uh, S90s, well, actually, that's not true. Um, I specify a particular version of S90. They made, I think, four different versions of it over the years and Yamaha and their infinite wisdom did not make any of the system exclusive dumps compatible across the versions. So I have had times where I show up and I've specified an XS or an XF and they'll show up with an old original S90 and I have to scramble. I know what my settings are close enough that I can find rough equivalents enough to get through the gig. But yes, there have been occasions where they will bring the wrong flavor of of the right keyboard. and uh, Makes for a long afternoon then. Makes for a long afternoon. Luckily, um, by programming... I know what I need for for the gig and my programming chops at this point in my life are fast enough. I can zoom through the presets and then modify what I need to and and stuff. So it's not the end of the world, but yes, it makes for a very long afternoon. I can imagine. (laughs) It's like, Eric, can we bring you dinner? Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Dinner and uh, I don't know, something something to drink because I'm going to be... I need I need some, uh, therapy. I need you can therapy. please crack that bottle of wine for me now. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> so all that said, how do you handle? Because invariably, I know you have to sub gig some. How how do you handle subbing for your gig? It's tough. It it is tough. It has to be just the right person who has the ears to pick out. The parts. I do have a big spreadsheet of the patches I use and generally the parts that I sing. And you are um, you are a Capricorn through and through. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah. Uh, and then also the uh, the parts that I play and what can get what can get left out if they're just learning. Right. You know, if they're trying to get at speed, because you're just trying to hit the high spots. Yeah. Yes. It's it's pop music, so there's no there's no charts. Oh, so you guys don't have a book or anything? We don't have a book. Oh, no. wow. No. And I've had this aversion to the printed, you know, printed notes since I was taking piano back in the day. I just, I, uh, me and notation, uh, don't get along too well. So it would be on me. It would be, it would be on, on my shoulders to create the book. And that's, I would rather have like dental work done than. (laughs) (laughs) See, that, that surprises me. I would think that you would, you would take to that like a duck to water. No. My reading skills are, you know, I can follow a lead sheet and if you give me enough time, I can, I can kind of, kind of grind through a a score, but no, my reading skills are not good. So everything I've, everything I've ever made a living doing was figuring out how to work around that limitation because though i'm classically trained no i never i always my ears were always stronger than my eyes wow because i i remember this has been more than a decade ago i played one of one of max gigs on the road with you guys Mm -hmm. and that for me that was at the time that was at the front edge of what my reading would do for me i mean yeah obviously we're talking at this point 20 years ago or something but sure and so my reading's way better now but yeah I, I that surprised me but but again thinking about it that was a frampton gig so right. you, <laughs> that wasn't just any orchestral pop gig that was a frampton gig so then i could see where you could kind of skate on the reading thing well kind of i mean he he writes charts for people who can play as play and read as well as he does which is next 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 level up um and i kind of had to try to train him over the years that 
I can't read as you know technique wise. Maybe I can keep up with him playing, but reading wise, there's no way in hell. Right, right. For people that don't know what I'm talking about, your pops for for a very long time had a very popular uh, pops orchestra that toured all over mm-hmm. the place. Yep. And uh, and that's what we're talking about for for people that aren't in the know. Right. So yeah, and even even his trio shows and everything else, he writes these incredibly dense you know, just brilliant arrangements, but you've got to be a really sharp reader to get all those notes. And I, some decades ago, I basically just satisfied myself with being able to get about half of them. Gotcha. So, (laughs) and, and, and the rest of it, I can fill in the blanks enough that, that it gets, it gets the point across. Sure. Sure. In thinking about that, I had these flashbacks of, of, of getting that book and I hadn't been out of music school too long. Oh, wow. So uh, you'd think that my reading would be a lot better than it was. I just remember looking at the charts going, man, I got a lot of work to do between now and the time I get on that plane because uh, <laughs> this ain't easy. Yeah. And uh, I, I didn't do a bad job. I'll just say that I, I at least did well enough that nobody uh, decided to fire me in the middle of the gig. So <laughs> I, was gonna say, I can't imagine you doing a bad job ever, dude. Oh, dude. Seriously. Thank Seriously. you. Thank you. I appreciate that. I did come away with a great story from, from that particular run, though, because I had never worked with a concert master, and, and Martin Souser was the uh, Mar- con- Yeah, Marty Souser. Yeah. Yeah. And so yeah. I didn't realize that whole process of when you're working with a pops orchestra and the guy comes out and he gives the tuning note and all these things. And there was one of the gigs on that that run that I felt like everybody was looking at me. It was one of those where I think I had to count the first tune off. And I just remember everybody looking at me as if I was supposed to be doing something and there's an audience looking at us. And I just count off the song and we start playing. And I didn't realize, I didn't look, I was so scared to death. Like I said, I was, I was in my early twenties. Uh-huh. I was so scared to death. I didn't even realize that Marty was not sitting in his chair. And oh, we're about maybe eight bars into the song. And I look over to my left and he's to the, he's on the side of the stage with his arms crossed and he's just shaking his head. He's just shaking his head as if, <laughs> but, and, and, and I, and we got through the first song and the audience claps and then Martin walks out and does the thing that he was supposed to do six <laughs> minutes ago. <laughs> yeah. It's like, okay, now that we finished this opening tune, let's tune the, tune the band. Let's tune the band. Oh, and I swear. <laughs> For the next two hours, I thought he hated my guts. And, I, and there were a couple of times I thought I was getting a death stare, but I wasn't. He's just concentrating. And uh, after the gig, you know, the, the after show, everything's packed up. Everybody's kind of decompressing. And, and, and I just went over to apologize. And he just smiled and put his arm around me. He was like, it happens. Things happen. <laughs> and he was so gracious. And, and I, I will forever remember that, you know, especially oh, working yeah. with younger people because – uh, you know, there's times when I don't want to be as gracious and I just have to remember, you know, somebody, somebody gave you a mulligan and, uh, you have to pay that, that forward a yeah, little bit. So, yeah. Anyway, oh. that's my story <laughs> about that gig. That's funny. That's a good story. <laughs> this episode is brought to you by session ACE and their incredible line of in-ear monitors and other musician specific products. I've been using the six driver universal fit ESA in-ear monitors on every single recording session and live gig that I've played on for the last three years. And let me tell you, 
there's absolutely nothing under $2,000 that sounds as good as these ESAs. But believe me, I've owned everything under $2,000 just about. And the shocking thing about these is these six driver in-ear monitors, you can get them today your own set for less than $400. Unbelievable. So go to SessionAce.com today to check out the ESA in-ear monitors as well as their entire catalog of musical products. That's SessionAce.com, remarkable tools for musical craftsmen. So let's get over to the tech side of things because that's what, part of what we were talking about before I just went on this whole long other uh, <laughs> tangent for you. The other side or one of the other sides of what you do is keyboard tech into the stars. Yes. And when I when I say keyboard tech into the stars, we're not just talking about, you know, B or C level people. We're talking about B-52s, Paul Simon, Lionel Richie. I mean, like, I could go for a while and name a lot of names that everybody that's listening to this would know. Mm -hmm. And so I have a lot of questions about that job. Okay. Because most people that are listening to this have never been in that world at that scale. Mm-hmm. You know, most musicians, we're used to carting our own gear to the gig that we know really well, and we set our own stuff up, and we do everything ourselves, we pack it up, and we leave. And so the idea of a keyboard tech is like this dream thing. Like, yes. If only <laughs> I had someone to set up my... I have a feeling that your job entails more than just setting up gear, right? It does. Are you more like, I'm not trying to put words in your mouth, are you more like a caddy for a pro golfer? Because a, a caddy is for a pro golfer isn't just a guy that carries clubs. They're, that guy's job is much more important. I was going to say, I've never understood exactly what a what a caddy for a pro golfer does. So so spell that one out for me. Well, well <laughs> we'll go on another uh, tangent here. So usually any caddy for a, a, a PGA golfer is making high six figures, if not seven figures, depending on who you're working for. Okay. But that guy does a whole lot of work. He's almost like a coach and he's almost like the keeper of the the mental spreadsheet for courses. He's okay. he's the he's the guy that does the research about the course and the holes and the way, way things that lie. A lot of times he even suggests clubs. You know, if you could imagine somebody an amazing golfer uh like Tiger Woods was back in the day or some of these newer golfers that are out mm-hmm. now mm-hmm. uh that uh, that I've just started getting into I've just got back into golf. That's one okay. of the reasons why this analogy is so close to me. Right uh, now. Okay. <laughs> okay. But uh anyway, uh this guy is sort of akin to a second brain. Gotcha. Because he knows as much, if not more, about whatever course they're playing on and uh and what possibilities that that golfer may need to uh, also he keeps track of tendencies so whatever a golfer has done on courses in the past he already knows those things like he knows the golfer he's working for as well as the golfer himself okay so it's a real deep relationship so now that i've put all these words into your mouth why be a keyboard tech at that level what is the purpose for that other than just setting crap up 
Okay. So um, now that I, I, cause I've never really known what a, what a, a caddy did. I mean, I knew they carried clubs and I knew they suggested things from time to time, but I, I can honestly plead complete ignorance on that one. So thank you. Um, we do some portion of that and for different techs and different musicians, the, the, the job description changes a little bit. Mm-hmm. So, okay, I'll just tell you about my my gig. I initially came in, my first teching gig was B-52s, and I came in as a sort of programmer, though I didn't know it at the time. Um, I, I came in to help their keyboard player, uh, Pat Irwin, do some, fly some samples into an old sampler mm-hmm. and do some programming on some old keyboards that he had. And from there, it developed into some of the other names you were talking about, but my job is, yes, it is to set up the gear. It is to make sure the gear is running properly in sound checks uh, or line checks. Uh, the sound check happens when the band's there. The line check happens before the band gets there. In the line check, I'll play through the gear and make sure that everything is outputting what it's supposed to be outputting. Uh, signals are clean. Levels are, are what the monitor engineer and what the front of house engineer are expecting to see. Okay. Um, if it is rental backline gear, that may be the first time that I've heard it. So that's also my time to check it out and make sure everything is, is functioning correctly. And then in my case, I also go through and because I'm, again, a little OCD this way, I will go through and clean off keyboards. I take a bottle of, bottle of cleaner and a soft rag and go through and clean all the schmutz off and all the sweat from the previous nights. Yeah. If it's backline stuff, I clean all the gook that the backline company inevitably has not cleaned off of it because yep. most of them don't. Of course. Right. Some of them do, and I'm there are my friends. But most of them just, they don't think about it. And it's like, no, I, I approach it as if, what do I want to see when I approach a keyboard rig? Gotcha. And I'm a little, you know, I'm a little pickier than, than some people. I'm not as picky as some others, but I am a little pickier than some people. And I want it to be, I want the stuff to be tip top sure. and I want it to be clean. I don't want someone else's goo all over, you know, the Kronos touchscreen or whatever. It's like, I want, I want you know, I want it clean. Yes. If, you know, when, when Lionel sits down at his piano, I don't want someone else's schmutz all over the keys. I want them clean. Right. So, so when I'm setting up, I'm thinking in, in those terms. And then I also, I'm the sort of person that either has close relationships or, or kind of none at all. And so inevitably I become friends as much as I can with the guys that are going to be playing these instruments and find out what their priorities are, find out what they're used to seeing, what they need, what they, what they look out for. And in some cases, like the caddy, maybe give some, some guidance. Like if we're working on adding some new gear to a rig or someone comes to me and says, I want to add this and this and this and this and this. I go, okay, can we fly it? You know, let's be practical for a moment. I get what you want to do and that this is fun or whatever, but can we get away with half of this and still get the point across and you can still have some fun with some new gear? Or do we really need to schlep around another 15 pieces to do it? And a whole music store is worth the stuff. Right. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Most of the time the 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 folks are really once they step back from it for a moment go oh yeah okay i see that and 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 then from from my point of view setting things up it's also the the less gear you've got out there the less stuff there is to break yes or fail so there's that and then once they're on deck and playing the show and here's here's where i think different techs have handled different things 
differently, but I keep eyes on my players constantly through the show. Sure. And am looking for facial expressions. I'm looking for someone struggling with a sustain pedal that's just about to fail but hasn't completely failed yet. Right. I'm looking for for someone's drink to have run out. You know, oh boy, let me slip in behind him and 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 bring another drink out there. Just human kind of stuff. Sure. Because they can't necessarily run off stage, but I can be their hands and, and feet to to bring them things or whatever. So I don't want to say babysitting them, but babysitting them. I mean, we all like to we all like to be taken taken care of. Well, yeah, and 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 being that extra pair of hands is is really important because I know for me sometimes with certain gigs that I play, the fact that I didn't bring a towel with me, and now I can't see because my entire face is covered in sweat. And uh, if somebody would just hand me a towel, my life would be so much better. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And uh, you know, not having a tech on most of those, then I'd end up just grabbing my shirt. But yeah. <laughs> Me too. Yeah. yeah. But yeah. To, to have that must be an incredible luxury because then you can you can keep your mind on what the job is, which is to play these tunes at a really high level of execution. Yes. Yeah. Yes. That's exactly right. Well, so tell me this. How much do you actually have to pop the hood on gear in that case? With I'll use Lionel as, as the example because that's been the I've been with him the most for in the past five or six years. If we are on a tour where our own gear is getting loaded and unloaded every day or every other day and is getting trucked across the country constantly, uh, things will vibrate loose. Okay. I don't get things like snapping loose or stuff like that because we have nice flight cases for stuff, but things will kind of vibrate loose. One of the the keyboard players that I look after besides, besides Lionel, I look after Chucky Booker, and he's got this one move uh, he takes out an S90 as well, and he's got this one move where he really lays into the mod wheel for a couple of a couple of moments during the show, and just really shakes that thing. And I find myself pretty consistently opening up an S90 and tightening a mod wheel back up. Gotcha. Because it'll just start the screws will literally start loosening themselves till the wheel just falls in the thing, yeah. and I'll pull it out of the case between. This is between his thing and the driving. I'll open it up, take it out of case, and the mod wheel's just falling in. I'm like, oh, great. Do I still have the screws? Yay, okay, I still have the screws. <laughs> yeah. Good. So I can, I can, I can re- reattach it, and then from there, I go through all the, the system testing and everything and make sure everything is right. But that kind of stuff fails. Uh, sustain pedals failing all the time. I keep probably a half a dozen of them in my workbox just at the ready. And I don't even go through fix them. I just toss them. Put a new one up there, and there it and there it goes. Um, I, I'm the same way with molded XLR cables. There's no reason to even try and fix a molded XLR cable. Just throw it in the garbage because they're cheap enough. <laughs> they're yeah, cheap enough. I mean, you just get a new one. I kind of hate to be wasteful, but unfortunately, the the concert business at that level is not so much about uh, recycling. So yeah, those I I do find find myself having to open things occasionally. Sometimes uh, multi-pin connectors will vibrate loose inside. Like ribbon and connectors boot. and things, I would yeah. imagine. Yeah, I'll boot I'll boot something up and I'll get nothing and thankfully uh, it's it's almost always a connector that's just popped loose and if it happens more than once I'll take a hot glue gun to it and Yes. You know, do that kind of thing. With uh, one of the, the third person on, on the Lionel show that I work with is Dino Soldo, who plays sax and keyboards and all kind. Of, he's got an Iwi, an electronic wind instrument. And his rig is pretty often sort of in flux. He's 
adding new pieces and taking stuff away. And he's running main stage and making alterations there just to keep it interesting for himself. Sure. And so between the saxophones and the various stuff that he's got in, in, in the pawn shop up there, I'm tweaking on that stuff pretty, pretty often. Still, it's nothing terrible. It's all, you know, a spring is flown off of, off of the saxophone sure. or, I'm back making a backup of the main stage thing because uh, we've made some sort of modification in that uh, show or whatever, those kinds of things. So given the, the scale and the scope of the kind of artists that you're working with, do you have direct relationships with manufacturers for some of this gear and that allows you some better access to get things you need? Or how do you deal with that? Some, yeah. Some being able to throw around the name of an artist can often help with that. Sure. It doesn't guarantee it, but it can help with that. Some of the smaller, uh, more boutique manufacturers, uh, like, you know, some of the like guitar pedal manufacturers that, that we call are willing to help us both tech support wise and sometimes financially. But even then it's, there aren't freebies. We're not getting free stuff out there. Yeah. Most people, I guess, would think that at that point, people are just throwing stuff at you. They are not. No. Maybe the Rolling Stones are getting freebies. We are not getting freebies. Right. In fact, we're not getting, we're, we're getting, yeah, we're getting some discounts on some things, but, but as often as not, we're paying retail or close to, or the same, the same retail prices as anybody else walking into Guitar Center. The days of people throwing gear at you like that are gone. And manufacturers, especially manufacturers of expensive things like keyboards. Keyboards are not cheap to build. No. Just parts-wise, they're not cheap to build. They might be throwing freebies at, you know, top five Spotify artists or something, but not not the, the folks that I'm generally working with. Legacy artists and things like that. Yeah, I'm working with legacy artists. And though they are huge, they are maybe not huge in the, the minds of whatever manufacturer. And that's, you know, that's fine. Well, yeah. I'd imagine though, if, if you end up with some kind of piece that you just can't absolutely find a part for, it's pretty easy. If, if Lionel wants uh, his whatever piece of gear to work and it has this special piece, I would imagine if you call that company, dropping that name makes it a little easier to get what you need though. It does. Yeah, it does. I mean, we're still limited by does it exist? <laughs> like yeah. Yamaha, for instance, or well, Yamaha, Korg, any of them. They don't keep parts past pieces that are six or seven years old. Oh, wow. So, yeah, that's typical typical industry stuff for that. And I think by law, they have to keep enough parts for seven years and then they don't have to anymore. And, and so some manufacturers are better about that than others. There are keyboards out there that are current keyboards that I can't get spare parts for. Oh, Really? Um, I'm not going to throw any manufacturers under the under the bus as much as I would really like to, but there are current machines out there that I cannot get parts for. So I'm going scavenging in you know in other computer catalogs and things to find to find bits and pieces. Yeah. I was going to say, is that part of your job description too, where you're hitting like eBay and Reverb and buying stuff for the people you work for? Yeah, I mean, yeah, wow. yeah. It is. It depends on the musician, depends on the artist, depends on the keyboard tech or the instrument tech. How deep they get into that. I am used to bench teching. I say bench teching, taking stuff apart on my own workbench at home. Yeah. So I'm used to going researching for parts. That's something that I I think nothing of it. That's just part of my thing. There are a lot of keyboard techs. Turn 
turns out, Turing keyboard techs that do not go that deep into bench checking, which when someone told me that a few years ago, that surprised me. I thought everybody did this. Yeah, yeah. Turns out they don't. There are guys that just set it up and that's about as far as they take it, which is shocking to me because if I didn't know all the stuff that I'm working on inside and out, I'd feel kind of weird. Right, right. You, know? you, you wouldn't feel like you could handle any situation that arises. Yes. Yep. Yeah. I take I pride that. in knowing this stuff inside and out. I get that. Speaking of taking pride in any situation that that might arise, have you had situations where, or do you learn parts for players you're teching for in case there's an emergency? Let's say that person uh, catches a, a stomach bug or they get some bad sushi and all of a sudden they're at the hotel heaving and you've got to play for them. Right? You, have you ever had that or do you do that? I, I do that. I tend to pick up parts just from listening to them play it over and over and over again. Yeah, it's one of the benefits of, of, of perfect pitches. You can kind of pick out some of that stuff a little easier, maybe. Sure. I do not specifically, it depends on the artist. I have had artists that, that have said, hey, it would be really great if you could learn these parts just in case, and here's a tape. Right. Knock yourself out. I'm like, great. Awesome. In other cases, they are, that's completely inappropriate and they don't want you to have any access to anything at all. And I'm like, okay, that's fine too. Okay. In some cases, it's sort of in the middle. Uh, like with Lionel, Chucky has been really, really cool about letting me get up and um, I've learned probably two thirds of the show. Okay. And he will let me during sound checks. If there's, if we're having like a situation where he needs to be on Lionel's piano or he needs to grab a mic and be out front or whatever, mm-hmm. he will call me up and say, Hey, would you come and play my parts while I step out front and we check out this other thing. So it's been really nice to, to be able to help out with that. I mean, there's on my part, there's no expectation of anything whatsoever. Sure. But I'm happy to help. You're just trying to add value to what you give to them as yes. a service. Yes, exactly. And worst case, if something were to happen, and in Lionel's camp, things have happened before where Chucky has had to jump on something besides keyboards. He's one of those amazing cats that can get behind anything and play it like an expert. I mean, I, it's, it's, it's kind of crazy, uh, but he's one of those guys. I would like to be able to be ready to go, hey, you know, at least I can stand up there and look like I know what I'm doing. I know close enough to catch some things. I have had to stand in a couple of times. There were, were some times on B-52s where, you know, in one particular case, one of the, one of the folks missed a flight and mm-hmm. I ended up filling in on keyboards. And then when they were between keyboard players, well, a little sidebar, their keyboard player also plays guitar. When I was there, it was Keith, Keith Strickland. Mm-hmm. But uh, so that's part of the gig is you have to be, be able to play guitar. Oh, wow. And um, they were between keyboard players. And so I ended up filling in a couple of gigs and just sort of emulating the guitar parts on keyboard because I don't play guitar. So I ended up playing with B-52s a few times in between finding full-time guys to do that. Well, I mean, because things happen. A a (laughs) few weeks ago, I had a gig, a pickup gig with a bunch of all-star players. The keyboard player was uh, the guy who's currently keyboard player for Pure Prairie League. And so, you know, they had a Saturday Pure Prairie League gig that he was going to fly from that gig to our Sunday evening gig here in town. Mm-hmm. and they canceled his eight o'clock flight and so oh, you know with no real recourse as to what flight am i going to catch next to get where i need to go so oh, wow. you know, like wow. in that case we were you know working the rolodex and, and the phones to see who might possibly be available to play these 
90 minutes worth of songs, <laughs> mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. but, but things like that happen. Yeah. Like missed flights or, yeah. uh, you know, so like I say, somebody gets some bad sushi and they can't stand up there for two hours and play yep. these things. I'm just, yep. I was curious if that was something that was expected or, uh, if it's something you just did as an in case, like, I'm not going to say I know how to play these songs, but if I ever had to stand up there, I could definitely get through the show for us. Yeah, it is. It is absolutely not expected. And it's something that I just enjoy sort of picking up the parts and working with Boston and mm-hmm. getting to watch Tom Schultz every, every night and getting to sit back by that Leslie cabinet and hear the man play those Hammond parts, like point blank. There's my ear. There's the Leslie cabinet. Here's what it sounds like. This is what he is playing. Maybe not identical to what he played 40 years ago when he tracked them, but still eh, close. Yeah. Yeah. Plenty close was awesome. Cause I, I just grabbed that stuff and I'm just sitting there running my fingers over, you know, a flight case while he's doing the things and sort of playing along going, Oh, okay. Wait, wait, he did that thing got it okay like a free lesson almost free lesson right and and he was so forthcoming with with his wisdom about hammond voicings and how he records them and how he mics them and how he that was a real real amazing learning experience getting to to hang out with him and just not i can't say hang out but get to to work with him and watch him work it was was really cool i i I soaked up a lot from that so uh, the next question i got about this is uh kind of tied to a a recent experience i had Uh, a few (laughs) weeks ago i got to run sound for uh for sonny emery the amazing drummer he's got you know he's he's got his solo band stuff he does when he's not touring the world with folks like eric clapton and stuff like that Mm -hmm, but mm -hmm. um uh, part of being the front of house guy for this particular gig was getting to meet and to work alongside his drum tech who's okay. been his drum tech for decades oh wow and uh and he's while he's tech for other people along the way almost i'd say probably 90 percent of the work he's done has been for sunny mm-hmm. and so h- how does someone get into this kind of teching thing obviously it's it's a career that you can have for a very long time how how did you get into doing teching as opposed to being a player i fell into it okay (laughs) i fell into it so so stepping back for a bit i'm of course trained classically trained a piano been tinkering with electronic stuff ever since i was like six years old so i go way back with with a comfort with electrical things and with Musical things. And as I mentioned a, a while back here, um, I started servicing my own keyboards because I couldn't find anyone I trusted to maintain them for me without sure. damaging them. And I got some sort of a reputation around Atlanta, I guess. My, you, you could tell me, maybe it's a bad reputation. I don't know. <laughs> I, I got... Uh, Someone, someone got the word that I know how to fix old keyboards. And folks like Wizard Electronics did not like the fact that you knew how to do something they couldn't do very well. Okay, I got well, you. right, right. So <laughs> oh uh, you weren't going to say it, but I'll say it for you. <clears throat> how about them Braves? Um, <laughs> so, <laughs> so uh, I got a phone call from the guy who manages a large rehearsal facility mm-hmm. in Atlanta. Yep. And B-52s were in that facility rehearsing and prepping for a summer tour to go along with the release of a like a greatest hits double CD thing that had just been put up. And that was the phone call where, where they said, hey, we've got some old keyboards and we need you to do some programming on it that I mentioned a, a little while ago. That was that phone call. Okay. And, 
they said, we've got two regular guys we, we call and they've both gotten called away to other things because we B-52s aren't working, but they can't make it to these rehearsals. Could you come in and help out with some of this programming? Uh, and I said, well, what do you have? And I said, well, such and such sampler and such and such keyboard. And I'm sitting, sitting here going, yeah, no, I've, I've worked on those for, for years. I remember them from back in the day. I had no clue what <laughs> I was doing. Yes, yes, I love that. And so I get in there and I bring my little tool case and I bring the instruction manuals that I have dutifully printed out. And I'm thinking, okay, well, they've got a keyboard tech or something and they'll do their thing. And I'm just going to sort of consult because I don't know. I, I don't know. I'm just going to, I'm coming in here as a consultant. Right. No, the guitar tech who at that time was going through a nasty divorce and was a, in a really, really foul mood. It's like, get your ass up there and set up this. Da, 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 da. You're sitting up. Da, 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 da. Who, you got, who else do you think is going to do this? I went, oh, okay. So I started pulling things out of cases and you know, no notes from the previous text or anything. Just hmm. like, uh, okay. And started setting stuff up. Uh, the modern engineer had been with them for a long time and he was very helpful and giving me some pointers and the grumpy guitar tech was helpful as much as he could be giving me some other pointers. And so I set up a <laughs> middle pointer. <laughs> it was right. Right. No. So I, the, the, I have to say I'm still friends with both that modern engineer and that guitar tech to this day. And they are two of the sweetest people ever. Like, it, says, it says a lot about you, yeah. Like ever, but it was that first day of just, oh Lord, what am I stepping into? <laughs> you caught him on the wrong day, brother. Oh yeah, no, terrible, and yeah. So it's, I mean, we are great friends to this day now. But you know, in two thousand three or four, whenever this was, a long time ago, it was not a not a happy day. And uh, so I, uh, yeah, it came from a random phone call from me working on old keyboards. Gotcha. And from there, they needed me to fill in on a couple of dates that these keyboard, other keyboard techs could not do. And so I said, well, I've never done this, but I'll give it a shot. Sure. And they said, you just need to, to set everything up and be present in case anyone needs any help. I'm like, I can do that. And we did the dates and got through them. And then the other keyboard techs came on and they finished out most of the tour. And then I think like a month before the tour is supposed to be done, same tour. I got a panicked phone call from the production manager saying, hey, Eric, we're in San Francisco and our main keyboard tech guy has been called off again and he's out doing Bruce Springsteen for 18 months mm -hmm. and our backup guy can't do it. How fast can you get to San Francisco and finish this tour? Oh, uh -huh. And I was, I remember it. I was in the car with my girlfriend at the time driving to our whatever anniversary of dating dinner, fielding these phone calls in the car, you know, so much for the anniversary vibe. I was going to say, she's sitting there steaming. She's steaming. <laughs> she's irate. And I don't blame her, but yeah, I don't blame her. And, you know, the call, the call came and I had to jump on it. Yeah. So I did. And I don't remember the rest of the night. I'm sure there were no deaths, uh, maybe minor injuries and, uh, went out to, to San Fran and picked up the rest of the tour. And at the end of it, they said, Hey, we'd love for you to be our full-time guy if you'd be up for doing it. And I said, if you're willing to teach me how to be a roadie, I'm willing to learn how to do this. 
Oh, and cool. uh, I got, you know, between the guitar tech who is still on the thing and uh, we had gotten to be good friends at that point and the production manager and the, the monitor engineer, all of whom had years and years and years and years and years of doing this. Uh, they kind of took me under their wing and um, sort of showed me how how it all works. Cool. So, so yeah. from there, go into other artists. Is it just your reputation with one group and the connections you make gets you the next gig or do you did you actively seek out other opportunities? opportunities? How, how do you grow that part of your, your service line? In the case of, I think most guys, they are actively working their network based on reputation and, and contacts. Yes. I have a really hard time reaching out to strangers like that saying, Hey, I'm available and you need to hire me because I've done this cool stuff. I'm really, really terrible about that. Okay. So in my case, it's a hundred percent word of mouth, getting the phone call from someone who trusts me because gotcha. I'm, I'm so bad at reaching out every, every gig I've had, which is frankly, it's not that many. I've only, I've worked with a half a dozen artists, but it's all been for long periods of time. Right. It's, it's been, it's been, Hey, I can't go out and do this because I'm out with such and such. I think you would be the right guy for the job personality wise and skill wise. Call this person. I'll tell him you're coming. God. I'll tell him you're calling. So that's, that's how it happens for me. Cause yeah, I don't get along with everybody. I'm kind of, you know, I'm, I'm, you know me, I'm an odd bird, but the folks that I get along with, I get along with generally really, really well. Of course. Um, that's yeah. For me, it's just, it's, it's word of mouth. I've always been curious how to, how, especially if somebody were, it, if somebody were young and, mm-hmm. uh, you know, they've been playing keyboards for a while, but they, they have that tech bug thing that you've got. Mm-hmm. How would you suggest they get into being a tech as, as a career? Gotcha. The, the real question. Uh, <laughs> as opposed to yeah, somebody, somebody <laughs> is screaming at me right now as they're listening to this. Ask him that question. <laughs> Ask him how I do this. So I'm asking you. Right. Cause my, cause, cause my path into it was very much not the normal path. Sure. If I were doing it again, first of all, you would need to be much more of a self-starter than I am. Okay. They need someone, whoever it is needs to be really super motivated. Um, they need to be not afraid to pick up the phone and make the phone calls and make the connections. I think if I were doing it again, I would try to connect up with a local backline rental house. Oh, okay. And learn everything you can possibly learn. Take the manuals home, take the books home, get on you, soak up all the knowledge on everything you possibly can keyboard wise. Mm-hmm. Let's say for a keyboard tech, it would help to know about Things like MIDI, uh, USB and computer networking, how MainStage works, uh, nowadays how Ableton Live works. Mm-hmm. It would be nice to know the work, the the business end of a soldering iron, but yes. not necessarily required. But I would get together with with a backline house, see if you can get hired and start showing that you know what you're doing, that you've got an attention to detail, that you can work with other people and take direction really well, that you can be attentive to other to, to folks' needs. You do this enough and you kind of figure out what's, what's it's like anything else, you kind of figure out what's necessary and what's right. expected. But yeah, I would maybe start with a backline house. And then you, as you start accompanying gear to shows, you network with other keyboard techs and other instrument techs uh, and production managers right? and be a friendly guy and be knowledgeable and be willing to listen and to learn and 
put your name out there and someone will remember you. you know, I've got, I've made a couple of contacts like that with, with local keyboard player text guys in a couple of different cities. And, you know, we've become the, the kind of friends that if I, if I'm in a bind, I know I can call them up even if they're not on the gig and go help. Yeah. You know, I need X. They'll go, great, be right over. So, yeah, that's that's how I would, that's, I think, how I would approach it now. Cool, because there's got to be, like I said, I know there's people that are listening to this that, for one reason or another, have thought about this as a career path, and they, they just need some direction. I don't like the idea of people screaming into their phones or their iPods or whatever they're listening to, at, screaming at me, <laughs> so I better ask you these questions. <laughs> right. Right. <laughs> Right, right. But I, one of the things I'm hearing definitely is you got to want to do this. I've definitely had not run-ins, but I've had to deal with production crew people who, for whatever reason, are doing that job. You know, whether it's lifting a speaker or setting up some lights or whatever. And it was the choice between painting a house or putting those lights up. And they just went, "Well, I got to have some kind of job." Those people are generally not very pleasant to work with. Right. Uh, so what I'm hearing from you is number one, you got to want to do this as a job. You got to love being a geek about this stuff and you got to love helping people. It certainly makes it more rewarding for, for someone at a, at a kind of young gun level, just getting into it. The pay is not going to be great. It's going to be okay, but it's not going to be great. And you've got to, you've got to love it. Yeah. Um, I'm at a point now where, you know, my pay is, is gone up from, from what I was making, you know, 20 years ago, thankfully. Yeah. But as much as anything, I keep teching. I mean, Electric Avenue works enough that if I stopped teching today, I could pay the bills from Electric Avenue. Okay. We're, I mean, we're, we're doing well enough that, that that is possible. It wouldn't be, you know, it wouldn't be necessarily quite comfortable yet, but the bills would be paid and my tax would be paid and, you know, we're good. But I tech because I love, yes, I love helping people out. That is very rewarding to me. I love solving problems. I'm not crazy about solving problems with 20,000 people staring at me <laughs> while my butt is up in the air on the floor trying to figure out a bad patch cable. Yeah. But my time on stage is, uh, you know, I spend enough time on stage that I'm comfortable with it. I don't mind being out on the deck. It makes, it makes for a good story. <laughs> sure. Some guys are really, some techs are really, really hesitant to be out on deck. And I'm just, I'm like, whatever. This is part of the show. Stuff happens. I'm not going to necessarily advertise I'm out there. But if I got to go out and do something, that says to the audience, hey, this is real. Yeah, there's actually stuff going on here. This is it reminds them that there's the possibility of failure. The wheels can fall off of this wagon at any point, And mm -hmm. that guy is proof of it. <laughs> and this guy is proof of it. I mean, Tom Scholes, I was early on. I, I, I was like, oh, boy, do I, you know, can I go out there and I got to do stuff behind him? I got to, you know, do Hammond registrations and stuff because he's busy doing other things. Is it OK to And my my backline crew chief said, yeah, Tom, actually, and I hope this is was not putting words in his mouth, but he said, Tom actually likes that because it reminds the audience that everything they're hearing here is real. Yeah. When they see you out doing drawbar settings while his back is turned or throwing a sustain pedal up or doing a patch change or doing whatever that he can't physically do, it's reminding them that this is totally real and it takes a takes a small army to pull this off. So I'm reminded of that. If I need to get out on the deck and, and take care of something, it's like, yeah, guys, this is, this is real. It's, 
And that's kind of cool. It, that is cool. It, it, it's dangerous. You know, what's happening up here is anything can happen at this point. And anything we have, can happen. And we have to have this guy to make sure that everything doesn't completely collapse. <laughs> well, <laughs> you know, I've had to get, we were in a situation with Lionel where he was having to use a, a, a keyboard controller for a, for a gig. We were on a, a riser situation where where the operator had screwed up and had, I won't go into the details, but basically crushed the Lionel's drink, which was on a little drink holder upstage, mm-hmm. crushed it and sprayed drink all the way down this keyboard controller Ooh. to the point where if you played the thing, it wasn't even, it, it, it wasn't even worse. It was like, you know, this <laughs> hopeless. And the only way to, to fix the thing was to get it out from up underneath the riser where it lived and change this controller out in front of God and everybody. It's like, huh. okay, any pretense of, you know, on this particular gig, any pretense of this being a real piano just went out the window because yeah. I'm lifting this controller out of this shell yeah. and pouring water out of it. <laughs> I'm going to turn stage. it over and the flood gonna is going to turn gonna it over And here comes the flood. Yeah. <laughs> and it was one of those where I, you know, I got the message to Lionel. I said, I'm going to be working behind you and just play along and sorry, but this is what it is. And yeah. To his immense credit, he's like, okay, cool. We'll just deal with it. It's it's part of the show. Yeah, this will um, be fun. This will be a thing. And uh, you know, so I get out there and I'm pouring water out of it and we're getting another controller in and I'm doing whatever to just to get through the get through the gig. And uh, you know, it's it's what keeps it real. It's what keeps it real. Very cool. Man, yeah. it, it sounds like it sounds like a fun gig. It sounds like it, it could be a lot of fun, even when things aren't going right. It can be a lot of fun. It can be a lot of fun. And to be able to, you know, I'm fortunate to work with, with other backline guys who, for the most part, are really are, are friends on some level with, with the guys they work with on, yeah. on stage. So, so we, we're all, it's, it's not an adversarial thing or anything like that. They'll come off stage if something's not happening and just, okay, what are we doing? We're hanging stage right until the next thing happens. Okay, cool. Okay, run back out on stage. You got to go play this song. You know, we'll laugh. Cool. (laughs) Yeah, it's fun. Fun, cool. It's fun. Well, man, I appreciate you taking the time to to talk with me. We don't really get to talk enough, if if you ask me. I know. I know. We're so busy just spinning in our own in our own worlds. You know, here I am now, an hour and forty five minutes up the road, which doesn't help for the drop in. Yeah, yeah, Um, yeah. Now that you're not you're not in town, is is that ever going to be a possibility that you move back? Or closer? I am. I am closer. I mean, I'm only. I'm. I'm up at, at the lake now instead of all the way over in Charleston, like we were for yeah. for a while. So it's. I kind of like it. I mean, you should come up to the lake. It's the, the studio is fun, and there's a little boat back there, and you know, it's it's a nice change of uh, nice change of scenery. Well, I have a little more time on my hands. I may have to take you up on that. I like that come idea. on, yeah, come definitely. on. Well, thanks for talking to me. Hopefully, uh, people got tons of stuff out of this, out of us talking about all kinds of geeky stuff and the things that you do. If people wanted to find out more about you and what you do and what you're up to, where do they need to go? Uh, There is a webpage at ericframpton.com. Gotcha. There is a LinkedIn page that is not very up to date, but it's there. There is a Facebook page. Uh, It's not like a musician page or anything fancy. It's just I'm on the Facebooks. Um, there is an Instagram, which I think is, uh, Eframp one. 
Gotcha. If anyone wants to follow there, I tend to post uh, gear gear stuff on on there. Yeah, I think that probably kind of covers it for social media. And if somebody if somebody wanted to get in touch with you, uh, either about working on a piece of equipment or teching for them or playing on a track for them, everything is ericframpton.com. They can get to you from there. They can get to it from there. They might have to do a little bit of digging because I I try to keep keep the info from the obvious spam bots sure. harvesting things. But everything you need to find me is either on there or on on Facebook. Cool, cool. Well, thanks again, and I guess I'll see you when I see you. All right. Sounds good. All right, friends. That's one of the best keyboard players that I've ever had the pleasure of playing a gig or recording with. And keyboard tech to the stars, including Lionel Richie, who's one of the biggest ones ever. That's Mr. Eric Frampton. I really appreciate his time and his tales from the road and his insight. I hope you've gotten something out of this conversation. I hope you get something out of every conversation. And and next week, I'll have another great guest for you. If you want to support the show, two things. Please visit our sponsor, Session Ace at SessionAce.com. Hands down, the best sounding universal fit in-ear monitors I have ever used. Uh, Along with a whole myriad of other products in their catalog, from cymbal cleaners to snare dampeners to just go over to SessionAce.com and check out all the cool, cool products. And you're going to be bowled over by how affordable everything is. That's Session ace.com they are truly remarkable tools for musical craftsmen and also make sure that you hit patreon.com slash brian stevens and join the patreon today if you dug this conversation there's i don't know another 20 some minutes of other uh stuff that we go through that's uh, all kinds of real cool techie geeky information about recording and plugins and synths and uh, we save all that for the deep dive that we do over on the patreon Uh, you'll also get my brand new drum sample pack 130 custom drum samples we call them brian's drums volume one just for lack of a better name. If you're at the uh, the $30 tier, you'll actually get a whole Pro Tools session that's the native captures from our capture session when we were putting this pack together so that uh, not only will you get the 130 samples that I've put together and I prepared for you, you will also get all of the raw samples from my entire session so that you can make your own custom sample library from these um, these amazing samples of this kick snare and two toms from this uh, great kit so patreon.com slash brian stevens you can uh, jump in on the patreon i'm starting to do live streams next week and q a's on the discord and all that cool stuff so i hope to see you there thank you so much for listening to the show thanks for hanging out with me please share this with a friend if you found this valuable And until next time, I'll see you when I see you.